Hello and welcome to the Hire Someone to Rob You episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck of Fundrise. Hello. I'm here with Stacey Marie Ishmael of Bloomberg. Hello. And guys, we have an incredibly special guest this week, Teresa Ghiarducci. Welcome. Hello. Hi. Introduce yourself. Who are you? Where are you? I'm a professor of economics at the New School for Social Research in Manhattan. So, Teresa, we have an unbelievably fun and wonky and awesome episode coming up with you. We are basically going to be talking about retirement, which is a subject that we get a lot of questions about and we very rarely have answers to. So you're going to provide the answers. We're going to talk about who's retiring, who's saving, how they're saving, how we can fix the system, why the system is broken, why everyone should be living in a co-op, why it's good to own your neighbor's toilet. Um, (laughs) We even have a Slate Plus segment on um, Logan Roy and his retirement plan. It's all coming up on Slate Money. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, Teresa, welcome. You are an expert on all things retirement. Right, and also wealth. You know, it sounds a little narrow to be just on retirement. It really is about wealth. And when you talk about wealth that workers have, it's really about worker power. I just get at that through retirement. So, basically, if I'm working and I'm building up my wealth, that means... I'm getting more powerful. And if my wealth is going down, that means I'm becoming less powerful. A lot like that. Uh, Now, you may not be powerful. Well, you're probably powerful in a lot of places at home, um, but mainly at your workplace. And that's the whole point. I mean, if workers have wealth or security, because a lot of people just want insurance, not wealth. And the way in America that we backstop the risk that we will get tossed out in the labor force or we'll live too long. Um, is with wealth, but in most other nations, it's with just social insurance. But if you have that, the wealth or the insurance, not only do you have a dignified way to think about your life, like I work really hard now, and then I'm going to have the reward at the end of my life to control the pace and content of my time. um, But you also have some ability towards, you know, in your late 50s or your late 60s, to kind of shape the kind of work you want, you can tell the employer, you know, that this is what I want, because if you're tossed out, um, it doesn't matter as much. And if you're not in that situation, you have a whole precariat of older workers. And in most nations, that group is getting larger, like tens of millions of them. Um, Then you have employers um, um, have a group of workers um, on their hands that really are more malleable. So retirement wealth you know, is a personal finance issue, but it's also a real big macro issue. And then the big macro thing that has happened over the past year or two is we've had this great resignation, the great retirement. We've had a whole bunch of older workers leave the workforce and not come back. We've had every survey of consumer finances from the Fed and everyone else has been showing that people are richer than they've ever been, especially poor people are richer than they've ever been. Is this like the silver lining of the pandemic? It just made everyone richer? It's a good thing? Uh, No, you know what? Um, No, it really depends upon who you are. Um, I call it just the tale of two retirements, you know, the tale of two big resignations, the tale of two, you know, wealth buckets. So um, people who are older, um, like in their 65 to 70, those Americans are retiring in all the true sense of the word. It sounds like they're making the decision and they're probably making the decision. We've asked them, but we also can see how the buildup of their wealth, they're doing it voluntarily. So the great resignation you know, is happening among older workers, like over 65, who have wealth and more wealth than they ever imagined. You know, The stock market's gone up 
you know, double digits and the first digit isn't one. But the other tale of retirement, um, so-called retirement, is not a worker's choice at all. Um, it is mostly among um, younger, older workers. So this is 57 to like 65. They don't have college degrees. They are retiring. They're telling surveyors that they're retired. But in fact, they've been pushed out of the labor market. And we know that because they haven't gotten wealthy. And the only way that the poor are wealthier than they ever have is because some of that stimulus money may have helped them pay down some debt. But in terms of any kind of wealth, you know, as a backstop for any of their life choices or for these big disruptions, it's mainly because they've paid paid down some debt. Could I ask you, um, going back to what you said um, before about the U.S. not really having social insurance? I mean, we do have social security for when you retire. Is that just so insufficient that so is well, not? No, no, we do have social insurance um, in retire in Social Security and Medicare, and it's wonderful, and I celebrate it. You know, rah rah, I'll do it right here. <laughs> um, but in terms of the rest of the of the nation, it provides the least in terms of replacement rate. So a middle-class worker under Social Security would only get about 35% of their pre-retirement earnings. In other countries, um, what comes from social insurance is much larger. In, in other countries even do it smarter. They have social insurance and then semi-social insurance kind of built on top of that. So let's talk about the Danes, you know, even though they're off on another planet, but it could be even the Netherlands, um, and even some parts, big parts of France, um, and even England, where you have kind of a mandated social insurance, that layer, that tiramisu layer of, um, of social insurance, and on top of that, a mandated or nearly mandated pension plan, where everybody has to contribute um, to their pension plan, and then it grows, and then at the end of their work lives, they can take it out as an annuity. This is really, really easy. All you have to do is put money in early, um, have it not be stolen or badly managed um, um, and not have fees, high fees, you know, take take the money away from it, you know, um, de- degrade its value. Keep it there until you're retired, you're retired and then take it out and have it last the rest of your life. And in America, we don't have a system that does that for people. That's, re- that's harder, though, in a very low interest rates environment, right? Like an annuity is something where you take a lump sum of money and you convert it into an income. Um, and when interest rates are super low, the income you get from a lump sum of money is kind of tiny. And you're like thinking to yourself, why did I even yeah. bother? Yeah, yeah. No, so that, so people, we have really good systems in America too. We don't even have to look to Denmark or the Netherlands. Um, you can look to the United Auto Workers, you know, or to... Um, janitors in in who are in um, in um, in SEIU locals um, who are the building managers who are um, in, um, you know cleaning up your commercial buildings or our doormen you know in our in our uh, who are in the 32BJ um, they have a pension system Social Security and then on top of that they have a defined benefit system that money is put in and managed professionally. Um, by managers, and they have a little bit of Blackstone, a little, you know, a little bit of um, uh, Brazilian Timberland. They have a, they have stocks, they have bonds, they have a diversified assets, and they don't have to really look at just the a retail available interest rate. They can have a diverse um, portfolio. Now they may not get seven or eight like you could before, but they're getting five. And so if we all put in five percent of our pay from the beginning of our work lives, like these janitors do, have it accumulate at 5%, you know, for the rest of your lives, you add that to social security, you actually have maintained your middle-class lifestyle. So that's actually not that hard. When you're saying that like the janitors are getting 5%, what, what does that mean? You got, you have two janitors. Um, one is in um, Ohio and doesn't have a union. And the other one is in New York and does. So the one in Ohio has the 401k type plan. The one in uh, the one in um, in New York has a DB plan. So they have to save a dollar every week for their retirement plan. The um, the janitor without a DC plan, they're on their own. They just invest. They will have to go to retail managers at high fees, and they have to rely on their own 
uh, their own um, investment advice, which is usually to put it in a safe asset or to put it all in stocks or whatever um, their brother-in-law says to do. But they manage their own money. Over time, they are going to earn a lot less on that continually dollar contribution than the janitor who is in a DB plan and has to sacrifice a dollar of his wages, that's according to his union contract, that goes into a defined benefit plan. So their whole work life, let's say 35 years, the one who is on their own and, and, and contributing to a 401k got a much lower rate of return than the janitor in a DB plan. So then um, the gay man's and they both retire. The um, janitor who was always in a 401k plan has a much smaller accrual than the, um, the janitor in the DB plan. But they both have a lump sum. They all had love some, but the one that had it in a DB plan has much, uh, much higher. Okay, so that's the bit which I didn't understand. I didn't realize that you had defined benefit plans that paid out a defined benefit that was some lump sum rather than a defined benefit that was some ongoing income. I'm just a little confused because, and maybe this is because I've conflated defined benefit plans with pensions, which I thought basically guaranteed a retiree a fixed income until he, he or she died. Yeah. Yeah, which sounds right. like different right. from what you were describing, which sounds like you just draw down from a lump sum. So the DB plan does give you an annuity for life. A DC plan could also give you an annuity for life. So what's crucial is like how much money do you have to convert into an annuity? A DB plan does it automatically, but it has a lot more money to do it with uh, for lots of reasons that Felix was just saying. But the DC plan just has less money. That's the simplest thing. That if you're, you have $1 that you're saving, you'd much rather do it in a diverse plan with long-term, short-term assets, with a manager who could bargain down the fees, you know, and, and has a much longer time horizon. But Teresa, why do you even care? If, if you're in a DB plan and you are getting guaranteed a certain salary for life, why do you care what the returns were in the pension plan when you're going to be getting that salary what, no matter what yeah, the returns were? Yeah, because, because in the end, the employer reduces the wages according to how much money they have to put into the pension plan. So you're the United Auto Workers, you're bargaining for the United Auto Workers. Um, the auto, auto workers want $100 you know, per month extra. The employer says, okay, how much is that going to cost me? If the pension plan is really well managed, like they are, then they don't have to take so much out of the workers' wages. If the pension plan was not well managed, then they would have to actually contribute a lot from the workers' wages. So essentially, the incidence is on the worker. The worker has to pay um, no matter what. So you care a lot, and you can see lots of unions wanting to have a say in the way their pension plans are managed, really fuss about the um, the, like the private equity managers that might be in it that don't really yield anything. They've pushed for legislation, so there's no, there's no conflict of interest. So you care a lot, you know, what your rate of return is, even if it's an indirect, it's an indirect benefit. If you're represented by a union, you know, it's, uh, you know that what the, what the pension plan earns will redound back to you in, um, in higher wages. I feel like as a person who started in and for years and years didn't have access to a 401k, for example, um, or to, you know, when I, the brief window that I worked in the UK, I joined right when they were like, nope, no more pensions for anyone. What is the kind of percentage of American workers or workers in the US who even have access to these kinds of options? Half of workers right now have access to a pension plan at work. So in Denmark and almost every other country, you are automatically put into, you're not nudged, you're shoved, you know, into a pension plan that earns a pretty good high rate of return. You can't take it out to remodel your kitchen. Um, you can't take it out, you know, for uh, the kind of emergencies that happen. You have to keep it in, just like we have to keep our social security in. And at the end of their working lives, they have enough money to replace what they had earned. The Americans are the only ones that are asked to save our, uh, for the long term in short term instruments. It's totally mismatched and really 
um, the unintended consequences of an unthought out system. It makes no financial sense at all. So our system does not let ordinary people invest in the things that union workers have or wealthy people have. A well-balanced, diversified portfolio. Are the assets that I can invest in through my 401k just much more limited than what I could get if I had a defined benefit? Oh, yeah. benefit? And what kind of assets are those? Because like, I don't, I don't want to invest in a hedge fund, Teresa, I don't think. Yes, you do. You do. Fees, you Teresa. do. So, I, so I'm a trustee of a $60 billion fund. Our liabilities are the United Auto Workers Retirees Healthcare. We earn more money than we pay out in benefits because we have a little bit of a hedge fund. Um, we have 23 people managing it. We have a little bit of a hedge fund, a little bit of um, private, a lot of private equity, but only the best. Um, we have access to the best managers because we're so so large. They come to us because there's some um, there's some prestige in having a, a big fund. Um, so. Big, well-managed funds that are diversified um, have much better returns and lower fees. But you, Emily, and me on our own do not want to own um, a hedge fund because you won't get the good ones. We are left with the bottom feeders. We retailers. (laughs) You know, every New Yorker knows that you want to buy wholesale, not retail. And poor, you know, and poor 401k uh, participants were only stuck with retail. How much of the advantage of defined benefit plans is a function of what you're talking about in terms of they get to invest with Sequoia or whoever, um, and they get higher returns? And how much of it is a function of what I was mentioning earlier, which is the sort of actuarial cross-subsidy where the people who die earlier effectively wind up subsidizing the people who live longer? Yeah. Yeah, it's called the longevity credit Um it's probably it's probably eighty percent asset allocation, um, and a little and a little and the rest longevity credits, and also um, fees and um, and scale. So you know the scale economies and the longevity credits, but most of it it's probably eighty five percent is asset allocation. I mean you've heard this before. Um, it's really important to pick your contribution levels, but it's much more important to figure out what your asset allocation is. Really? Like, I've always written the exact opposite. <laughs> Maybe I've been wrong the whole time. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, this mathematics, because if you can get another 1%, you know, risk adjusted and um, fee adjusted, um, that, can, that can be the same as adding two, 2% more contribution rate. I know it, it's, I mean, all I've done it is brute force. I don't know how to invest, even though I'm mean, a PhD economist, it's really hard as an individual. So I just put a lot of money into it and close my eyes, which is what most of us do. Or we go to the bar pill. We say, oh, I'm a risky, I believe in the stock market because you, I don't know, you had a, you were in a good mood that day and you went all in. People who retired in the seventies who did all that retired on half of what they could live on than somebody who retired, you know, in right before the crash in 2009. I mean, so our system not only hurts people because they don't know how to invest, they get lousy rates of return, um, but, but they can't change the time that they have to retire. And so if you retire in a good market, you're lucky. If you retire in a bad market, you're not. Even though we're supposed to have a system that kind of rewards people for the same kind of behavior. I mean, if you're a saver like an ant, you're supposed to like be rewarded like an ant. If you're a grasshopper, you know, and you don't, you know, and then maybe you won't. That's a kind of justice in these system. But one that just has to do with timing of the market through no fault of your own is really a broken um, down system. And it's really unequal. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. 
Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. I feel like we talk a lot about things that are fundamentally very depressing on this podcast, but this is, like, exceptionally depressing. So... Just to just to bring the tone down even further, what is someone supposed to do, right? If if they're part of that 50%, they don't have access to either DC or DB, they don't necessarily have access to liquid assets either. Like what what is which sounds to me just that there's like a just a tremendous amount of policy failure here. What do you tell people to do? Uh, one is to really vote. The government does is your most important financial partner. And um, politicians that say they're going to preserve your Social Security and your Medicare and maybe lower the Medicare age, uh, you know, are really important financial managers. So make sure that those programs are are in state. I'm not kidding. You know, it's a really important part of your financial management is to pay attention to those programs. But second, if you are a gig worker um, or intermittent worker um, and you don't have access to those workplace plans, then an individual retirement account with Vanguard, and I'll tell you why Vanguard, um, is your next best option. And you want to save, depending upon your age, you know, 5 to 10%. If you're young, you know, more 5 If you're older, you need to save 10 And the reason why I say Vanguard is because it's the only um, money manager that has a fiduciary responsibility to you, the saver. Nobody else does. And it's because of their ownership structure that every owner, every account manager is an owner. So corporate has a responsibility to you as a shareholder, and that's a fiduciary responsibility. And they don't have a responsibility to any other shareholders, so they don't have to extract profits from you. America's done a very good job of of like moving to Vanguard. You know, they they have this total market fund with one point three trillion dollars in it. Um, like the the passive investment gospel, I feel like I've been I've been writing about this quite a bit, but we we Gen Xers have completely bought into this, right? We like the pe- people of like Emily and my generation who um, who have been understanding why low fees are good and all of this kind of thing. I think that's actually one of the reasons why Emily and I are probably a little bit reluctant to buy into your tale of like, oh yeah, we you should you should put more money into two and twenty private illiquids really because like, well, two that. and twenty that's 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 like crazy. Like no, we want Vanguard with four basis points. Um, yeah, that's part of it. But I, but I am also especially post pandemic. Um, looking at a whole new generation of investors, you know, in crypto, on Reddit, um, who have learned that stocks only ever go up, who are making astonishing returns, who are young enough to be able to afford to take substantial losses if and when that ever happens, and who are not, like, outsourcing their um, retirement plans to a Vanguard 2055 target, taking control, learning about investing, and becoming much more financially sophisticated than like any of we than any of us lot were at that age. And half of me shudders because I'm like, you can't do that. You have no idea what you're doing. And then half, but then another half of me goes, well, you've made a lot of money and you seem to be learning a lot. Is it really that bad? <laughs> yeah, it's that bad. <laughs> They're making a lot of money now. Like, there's two things. For everybody else who isn't in a professional plan and a big one and one that's well um, maintained, Vanguard 6040 or a target date fund is exactly the right thing to do. It's actually what the federal government employees are in. They even have even better funds. That's um, a fiduciary, really low fees because the federal government, six um, million of them in that. But, but um, if I didn't have uh, a professional manager, I'd I'd be in Vanguard. In fact, when I have a choice, I'm always in Vanguard. So 60-40. But I'm I'm a trustee of the $60 billion fund, and we benchmark what we get according to what we could get in Vanguard. Every quarter, I, I make us do that exercise. And it's close, but we always get 
a little bit more. And that means we can add in dental and vision. You know, we could actually spend more money that way. So it it adds in the little luxuries. The difference can make it can matter. Yeah, but, but Teresa, just think of all of the billions of dollars you're giving to Sand Hill Road, and they're driving up the property prices in San Francisco to the point at which people just the cost of living goes up. Well, there is another issue about the complexities of capitalism. <laughs> we should, um, you know, and and the way that we invest our money is actually um, hurting our communities. And our livelihoods, but that would be another subject. If now I'm just talking about how you get your maximum rate of return as a little individual with none access to these um, conservatives, do two things. In your individual retirement account, save a lot, put it in Vanguard and put it in a fund according to your age. The second thing you do if you're in a 401k is absolutely insist that they have um, passive, they have passive choices. Um, because right now you can have a 401k with all sorts of words naming your your mutual funds, growth, this, that, and you can't even tell if it's a stock or a bond fund. And it's usually garbage. And now we're seeing lots of, uh, of lawsuits about the garbagey stuff that these employers put in the 401k because they outsource it to um, they outsource it to consultants. The MIT um, uh, 401k type plan was filled with a bunch of, of um, products from, um, from Fidelity because Fidelity uh, was on their board at MIT. So the universities have just been, been ravaged by this. I, I really, I'm fascinated by, by this whole syndrome of 401k plans being chosen by some random person in HR who was never really qualified to pick a 401k plan um, on the basis of basically the sales technique of these large companies and the ones with the most persuasive sales techniques and also I think the ones with the most recognizable brand names are the ones that wind up tending to get chosen. In the back of my head, I've always had this idea that there's some kind of implicit or explicit like kickback that the 401k providers somehow pay the companies to choose them rather than someone else. But does that not happen? It happens all the time. And your only recourse is to sue. So they're suing. There's a case going up to the Supreme Court. Absolutely. There is no, as long as you went through a process and interviewed people and they gave you a good, um, um, they gave you a good consulting. I've seen this evolve. And the big part of their services is to, is to say, and we'll fold the administration fee and make your workers pay for it. <laughs> um, then, then they get chosen. And it is, it is somehow um, just malfeasance, just uh, some random person in HR picking, or it's a, a personal friend and some kickbacks, which would be illegal. But, but most of them are indirect, and they're just kind of professional relationships with people at your club. It's not, it, it's not well run, and it's very particularly American, the lack of oversight. And the result of this is that people who have higher income and um, do investments, they'll go out and hire a financial advisor. So the American system requires you to go find a financial advisor. Most of us might get the advisors in the tech, um, in the phone, you know, in the on Google, or you have worse. The worst are the ones ad- recommended to you by family and friends. They're the worst. You get one of those, and um, and you get told to be put into a lot of high fee funds. The very uh, the wealthy of us go to a non conflicted advisor and go to them like you would go a therapist, you know, or a specialist and say, I'll pay you a thousand bucks. Here, here's my life. Um, recommend what I should do. And that person doesn't get any financial benefit from what they recommend from you. Um, that's what the very wealthy and sophisticated do, and they get much higher returns. So the system is built that if you want to do it well, you have to go extracurricular if you have to do, if you really want to do it well, you have to go extracurricular, find your own advisor, and get one that's not um, conflicted. And they really only exist in concentrated areas. So if you're in the suburbs or in a rural area, you don't even have a chance to win win at this. 
The government is subsidizing the rich enormously here. Like, if if you are someone with enough liquidity to be able to sock away $17,000 a year in your 401k, then the government will let you do that all tax-free. But if you are a normal person who does not have $17,000 a year to sock away into a 401k, then all of those tax benefits just go to the rich and you wind up with a much smaller or possibly zero tax benefit. And it always astonishes me when I see the numbers of like the tax expenditure, it's called, of the 401k program, just how much money the government spends on the 401k program. And the way that that money is skewed overwhelmingly to the top quintile of the population. So we know that the rich get tax breaks on all sorts of things that nobody else does, like the mortgage um, interest deduction, um, short-term capital or long-term capital gains tax. Um, We all know that the rich do better, but the retirement um, benefit is the most unfair. Um, 70% of of that total $250 billion dollars goes to um, to the top 20%. And these we know behaviorally as economists that these are people that would save anyway for retirement. Yeah, they but don't they get need about it. A, they, they don't need it to save. They don't need to, to meet the public interest that we want. Um, they also have enough. Um, how much they have to save, then they'll spend it later, will not hurt their lifestyle. But they get over $7,000 a year for saving the maximum. But somebody who makes... Um, seventeen thousand dollars or twenty thousand dollars, like the maximum they can they can put in, depending on your age, um, they could they could be just as virtuous, you know, as the rich person. Put away money, um, uh, find um, Vanguard, but they'll get nothing from the government. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people camp here, ransack my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. I want to talk more about gender as an explanatory variable, right? Because it's, is it indeed true that women who live longer but also make less money and are in a lot of cases disadvantaged by the tax code are up against an even worse set of conditions, even though, you know, according to the like the behavioral studies, they are more likely to make so-called good investments and savings decisions? They're also disadvantaged because they have kids and um Husbands, ah, those husbands. Um, it, that both, both 
both really hurt accumulation. Um, I, I was working with an anthropologist and we did focus groups with, with low-income women asking about their retirement um, and asking about their financial security and their financial future. And we really identified, we did this in a very positive way, but they really wanted more social security. And the reason is, is because their husbands and kids couldn't get it. Um, and so what happens, this goes back to bargaining power. You have a couple retiring in their early 60s and you have a difference of opinion about how fast the money should be spent. So there is some evidence that the one who will not live as long wants to live it up, go on trips. Um, and, and it could not, it, and it's not always conflictual. It's a joyful idea, you know, that we could do all these things together, but it doesn't take into account the, what the wife will need at 80. So a woman's subordinate bargaining power and her assignment of being a care, being care, carrying her children and her husband puts her at a disadvantage for wealth accumulating and making it last. And then you add in their low wages, and then that hurts. What helps women is that they tend not to think um, that Dogecoin or, or any other risky investment is something they should be in. They have their, their, um, they're more safe, and they are a little more suspicious of advisors. You know, so there is, um, they really just assume they're getting ripped off. Now, that could hurt them because their assets are really too safe, you know, really maybe tucked in their checking accounts. Um, but they don't trade it and they also don't trade as often. So there are gender differences. Most of them hurt women. So let me ask you about this, the mother of all trade-offs here. And this is this is the big one that, that really overarches this entire conversation is, do I spend the money today or do I save it for some hypothetical future point? Which may have which higher inflation now. I was just going to ask that. <laughs> it's like a big existential question that I, th- I think about a lot. It's like, I want to spend my money while I'm still alive. Like, yeah, is it, isn't yeah. retirement this scam perpetuated by like just another Charles Schwab survey that is sent to me, you know, like just another press release from a finance yeah, company no, right. telling me how unprepared I am. No. It is, it it is like such an existential question that John Maynard Keynes addressed it in a book he called The General Theory. <laughs> so the, the really the general theory is about how societies decide whether governments or people decide to spend now or save later. And, it is the most philosophical of questions because you have to believe in your own future and the future of these institutions. Um, it's quite amazing that we'll put money into the bank at 30 or a pension fund and really see that people collect it, you know, 30 years later. I mean, what a achievement to have that much trust and stability in the financial system. That, that is actually, you know, a, a really amazing um, but there is a problem. I, was, I, I want to do a whole scan, an anthropological scan of financial advisors, is that um, they think people want to leave money to their children or their legacy. And it tr- turns out that's just not true. <laughs> people, uh, it's, it's so untrue. Now, it's really hard to admit that to a surveyor, um, but that's not why people are saving <laughs> Um, they're usually saving because they don't know how long they're going to live. And it's this, it's like not having um, health insurance means that we all put $25,000 or $250,000 in a shoebox just in case we need a kidney transplant. I mean, that's really crazy. So what if we had longevity insurance, you know, where you could put a little extra in and you would get more Social Security um, as you grow older and you need more money um, or you would have a higher social security if you live past 85. People would do that in New York Minute and wouldn't put it, wouldn't put it in a shoebox or hoard it. Most bequests are accidental. And that's actually sad. Yeah, market failure. And it's what you fear. Um, and it also means that we have a totally inefficient retirement system. Most inheritance that people get, and most people don't get anything, and the average inheritance is 50000 um, is, is an accident. Your mother left you a house that was worth um, $500,000. And if she only knew, she would have spent that. She would have spent it <laughs> uh, you know, and not on you. you know, she, would have, she, would have, she would have had a lot, a lot more fun. 
So that's my question. Let's say, Teresa, and this is, you know, we can ask this question in a bunch of different ways, but let's ask it from the point of view of someone who's 65, maybe 70 years old, who's just retired, who has $4 million, and they're like, I want to die with nothing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. My email is slate money. <laughs> how, much is too, how much is too much? Like, I don't want to, I I, I don't want to die. I don't want to reach nothing before I die because then I'll be left with nothing and I'll be broken. I don't want that. Um, But like what, there there has always been this um, sort of actuarial rule of thumb that you should spend down about 4% a year. And that actual uh, actuarial rule of thumb predates this like new secular low interest environment. And I've seen, I've seen people say that that should not be 4% anymore. It should be more like 2.5%. How much of that money can I spend if I have no desire to pass anything on to my kids? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I've written about this. Um, everybody's written about it. And it ranges from 2.5 to 3.18. You know, it's lower. The point is it's lower than, than 4%. Um, so that's, that's a good problem. You just have to decide whether it's 2.5. And if you take out less than you, the chances that you'll leave something behind that you don't want to goes up. And if you spend a little bit more, the chances are that you're going to run out of money um, goes up. So you just have to titrate it. But the number, you should not anchor it at four. Anchor it at three, and you'll be you'll be about right. But the big problem is like your house. We have this weird system where people are asked to buy their house. Um, you know, in Germany, only half the people they live in nice houses own their house. Most of it is um, is regulated rent control, and the builders you know build it with that intent that they're going to regulate it. In New York City, um, most people, middle class people, live in rent. Uh, rent. So in America, buying your house is really pretty peculiar, and it doesn't really match an aging society. Um, one of our biggest problems is that we have big mismatch between the kinds of housing uh, that we have and the kinds of households we have. So if you go to Kansas City and you go to the suburbs, you have a lot of old ladies rattling around a three-bedroom, two-bath ranch that they have no reason to have, it might be left over when she dies and it's extra hundreds of thousands of dollars she could have spent. So we have an inefficient system, not only because of um, retail, you know, mutual funds available to the likes of us and um, the wholesale well-managed funds available to the likes of the rich, but we also have a wealth accumulation process that relies way too much on the house. Um, So if you want to not, um, if you don't have anybody you want to leave money to. Maybe you've given enough money to your kids during their whole life and having an, a bequest is not a goal. Um, then you also have to do something about your house. But right now, what something called a reverse mortgage Ooh. is um, is not it's a very... bad news. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's not wait, a good wait, product. Wait, wait, are they bad? I thought, I thought the reverse mortgage is the solution to this problem. Well, how is it not a solution to this no, problem? No, always bad. If you look at consumers' reports, <laughs> they, will, um, they will tell you that Probably selling your house and going someplace else would be more efficient, you know, because that's the and then just taking just taking the money. Yeah, but that involves like going through all the shit in the garage and like who has time for that? Yeah, you know exactly. That could be worth hundreds of thousands. I really think most people are left with the crap from their parents and the money that goes along with it, just because no one wants to go through the stuff in the garage. My mother just did die. That was that was sorry, but. Right before we had to do it, her obituary was posted and somebody came and robbed it. <gasps> and, and after the tears oh and all God, that, we were I kind done. of, oh, I have this left. They didn't take this. I'm just, I'm just, <laughs> but, you know, if they had, I'd be better. <laughs> what is it? Because none of you can see this. But it's, it's, a clock. it's like a Teresa, clock. What, what are you showing us here? Is that a carriage clock? It's a clock. It's really heavy clock. It might be worth a hundred dollars, maybe. Um, but they took a lot of this stuff. That's awful. Yeah, it it, it was awful, but but it really did help my weekend. The next weekend, it was pretty awful. Um, this is, this is the darkest episode this. ever of Slate Money. <laughs> 
just 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 hire yeah. someone to rob you then you don't need to worry about moving your stuff so then you can move to a smaller place and then you can free up hundreds of thousands of dollars that you have in your house which you can use to take your kids out for lovely restaurant meals i mean it all makes sense this episode has been has been a tiny bit heteronormative, so I want to ask a couple more questions. Um, one of the stories that I was reading recently is about you know the elder millennials of a, a generation to which I belong realizing that they have no inheritance, they don't necessarily have kids, they're not necessarily married, and perhaps we do not have four hundred one ks, but are trying to do like the one thing to your earlier point that can help get them on the ladder, which is like they want to buy a house, so they're trying to pool assets with other folks, but there's no kind of good legal mechanism or recognition for these kinds of relationships. You know, you have same-sex marriage being mostly legal in the United States, though who knows what's legal about for anything anymore and for how long. Um, and again, for a long time, you know, folks who were outside of the conventions of whatever we defined as the status quo were locked out of these kinds of benefits. You've talked about Vanguard being kind of a good idea for people, but w what is the advice for folks who don't even have the scraps of access to getting on these types of ladder. Yeah, no, right? I mean, so I, I work with my colleague, Derek Hamilton, um, who is a fan of baby bonds. Um, and that's, that's the whole idea is that you have to have a system of accumulation. We had that idea that we would equalize wealth processes with, um, with um, Pell Grants and low, and low cost public education. That you know, it was the human capital that everyone was supposed to be able to get uh, advantage of, and then that was really harmed by student loans. That was just replaced by debt instead of grants. So we need to actually change the human capital accumulation to be cheaper and more available, and get rid of student debt and do it with cheaper um, healthcare um, and, um, education. And um, the word I have, the equivalent of vanguard in the housing uh, wealth process, would be co-ops. So that you don't have to um, provide, you know, you don't have to create a cooperative relationship outside of the, you know, of the traditional marriage. But you provide a co you um, computer, you um, create a cooperative relationship among, um, you know, a handful of people that you have a close relationship and a legal obligation. So that's a legal form. But if you live in a co-op, like if you live in a co-op and like you're and something breaks, can't, isn't there just like one person that you get to call as opposed to like every time something breaks, it's like, well, who are we going to call? I don't know. And that just seems like a bad thing when I'm old and retired to have to deal with all the different things breaking all the time. So owning a home has a lot of cost to it that nobody ever takes into account. And that's these maintenance costs and headache costs and risk costs. So that's about 4% of the of um, the purchase price of the home, add in property taxes, um, and you have a pretty close to a rent equivalent. Take a co-op form, and that you're like you're like shareholders, you know, in a big building. And so your neighbor owns your toilet, and if your toilet breaks, um, your neighbor has this cooperative relationship that the that the super comes in and fixes your toilet cuz they don't want your toilet to run or be broken that's as good as it gets that's as good as it gets and it's really important uh, for older people we're now um, the union for um, for doormen are now training their doormen how to do some elder care and to watch for elder abuse um, so that you actually have a professionals there to kind of watch for who's going up there, whether or not um, Catherine Nino has come out of her apartment. So that that's what a family does. That's what couples do. You know, it's not it's not based on sort of a, a sexual relationship, but it's completely cooperative and self caring outside of a you know heteronormative um, um, couple relationship. And I am really looking forward to the foundation or to the academic. You know, or to the to the you know to Mayor Pete, you know somebody like that, some some leader, you know who will um, try to create these um, these organizations. The the um, the Jewish Home for the Aged is actually a uh, a really progressive uh, way to think about aging and living and cooperation. That's not that Kansas City suburb. We are running a little bit long, and I do want to make sure that we include at least include a nod to your. Um big proposal that you have going on with Kevin Hassett, specifically 
and just to be just to flesh it out a tiny bit more than you have already the idea is that the federal government has a really good pension plan and people pay into it and there's no reason why normal americans shouldn't be able to pay into the same pension plan that members of congress get and it's your money it's not like it's even necessarily subsidized by the government but if you just had access to that plan the outcomes would be would be fantastic. Um, we propose a very simple plan that everybody has access to what the federal government um, have. This makes sense. It's called the Thrift Savings Plan. That's the federal government's um, pension plan, and that's what member of Congress are in. Um, that's what the um, that's what their um, their workers are in, and that's what everybody uh, who work for the federal government across the country are in. So there's a member of this pension plan every in your neighborhood. And the idea is that we could, as Americans, since it's actually run by the American government, could have access to this platform. The platform is efficient. It's the one that you want to be in because of the fees and the information and the way it's handled. And it also goes with you no matter what kind of work you're in. Self-employment one day, a part-time employee another year, a full-time employee another year. It's always with you. It's as efficient as having one social security account. You have one pension account. So I can't stress how important just that simplicity, you know, would matter to people that they could see their savings grow. They would get um, encouraged by it. They would know what it would mean for their for their retirement. But a lot of people want more than just the simplicity. They also need the money. And so if you're earning below the median wage, which is around fifty five thousand dollars per year, the government would provide the contribution. The employer wouldn't have to. They could if they wanted to, but the employer would give you that $600 to $1,000, depending upon um, how much you made every year. And you would add at least 1%, but you could go up, you could go much higher. So it comes from what we found in behavioral finance is that people have a match. They will readily in involve themselves in the in the wealth accumulation um, plan. If they can see it grow, they will be encouraged to plan more. And if they trust the administration, um, they will even keep the money in. So it is uh, actually the best ever idea I've had in a 35 years of ideas <laughs> um, that we just, it's like, it's like Medicare for all. We've all heard of this idea that you have a Medicare. This would be just a thrift savings plan for all. It's already there. And it can um, take in it can take in the, the 63 million or even more Americans that don't have anything now. Teresa, thank you so much. It's been absolutely amazing having you on the show. I'm glad. And thanks for listening. Thanks to Shana Roth for producing. And we will be back next week with another Slate Money. <laughs> <laughs> 